0: My name's Teddock and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm alive tonight and sober by the very special grace of a loving God and the loving program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thank God that I'm an alcoholic. And if you're a newcomer, that'll make you want to puke. (laughs) First time I heard someone get up at one of these podiums and say, I'm a grateful alcoholic. I thought you're crazier than hell,
1: too.
0: (laughs) I want to thank all you thousands of people for showing up tonight. (laughs) I stole that line from a Baptist minister from the South because it always sounds good on the tapes for the folks back home. (laughs) I want to thank the committee for asking me to come down here. When I said I'd be glad to come to wherever we are, uh, (laughs) Fort Smith, Arkansas, I didn't realize that we... Had a very dangerous two-hour drive from Tulsa, twelve miles an hour. <laughs>
1: yeah. Dri- driver
0: was worried about getting a ticket. And I want to thank Ann and Sondra for picking me up. And on the way down, why from Tulsa, we had a stopped and had a lovely supper. They bought me a cup of coffee, and I bought a package of pistachios. <laughs> So, you know, it's true that the hospitality is here. (laughs) Now, seriously, if you are new, I hope you're experiencing the the hospitality, but more more important, the love that I always feel at one of these deals. And if this is the first one, why? I just pray to God that, that you're beginning to get an idea about what this whole deal is all about. See, what this whole deal is all about, for me, is a love affair. And that love affair started when I was two months sober. And I use the word sober advisedly, as I will explain that a little later. See, when my love affair started, Alcoholics Anonymous was at the first Palm Springs Roundup that I attended two months after I was sober. And after that meeting, when I looked around, there was a fellow from Winnipeg, Canada spoke. And there wasn't a dry eye in the house, and everybody held hands. And they said the Lord's Prayer. And I felt the love and the magic, and that's when my love affair with Alcoholics Anonymous started that night. And I said a little prayer that night. I said, God, if there is any way that I can give back, just a part what I've received this night, I will do whatever is necessary. And 12 years later, to the very day, I stood up at that same Palm Springs Roundup in front of over 3,000 of you guys and you gals at the opening night meeting. And I spoke for Alcoholics Anonymous. And that night, another magic happened to me. And that's what you're seeing tonight. Because that night, as I stood in front of over 3,000 of you guys and you gals, in one gorgeous second, I realized, all of a sudden, that all fear of people, places, and things had been removed from me forever, never to be returned. And one of the greatest promises of Alcoholics Anonymous came true for me in here where I live that night. My sobriety date is April Fool's Day, which is a good day for me, (laughs) of 1968. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to get sober. I just came for two weeks to get my doctor off my case. (laughs) And I'd been to your dumb meetings before. I had admitted 10 years before I got to this deal that I was an alcoholic. But the first meetings that I went to, I heard some of that garbage that I hear at a lot of AA meetings today. I heard things like, well, the only thing Alcoholics Anonymous promises you is sobriety.
1: <laughs> Big deal.
0: I mean, I had quit drinking for two whole weeks in 23 years, and life was unacceptable.
1: <laughs>
0: and if that's all you people had, well, lots of luck, folks. <laughs> you can have it. And then I went to another meeting, and there was some skinny little gal standing up there in back of the mic. I didn't know she was there for a long time because she was uh, standing sideways. And finally, she turned around, and I took a look at her, and I thought, my God, that'd be like making love to a gunny sack full of antlers.
1: <laughs>
0: and then she said something like,
1: If you want what we have...
0: I thought, Honey, if you got anything, hang on to it. <laughs> and you were all old. I mean, some of you were 40. <laughs> And you're all lined up around the side of the room and nobody paid the light bill and you had your head in your hands and, I mean, it was dull. (laughs) And I thought, boy, this is really it. This is the end of the world. You know, what a bunch of losers. And I went out for a little more experimenting. I drank for 23 years, as I said. I started drinking when I was about, well... I really started drinking uh, right away uh, because uh, I came from a family, uh, my mother thought if you were weak, puny, and sickly, a little fortified port wine would build up your blood. And so I spent the first 16 years of my life being weak, puny, and sickly. (laughs) You know, that first glass of fortified port wine, from then on, it all tasted the same. It all tasted like more. (laughs) I was an instant alcoholic. I I believe I was born an alcoholic. First word my mother said was, my God, did you see how much he drank? (laughs) See, I came with all the attributes to be a professional drinker. I had a chip on my shoulder, a resentment against everything and everybody, a gigantic mouth, and an (laughs) insatiable thirst. I still get through a six-pack of Coke as fast as I used to get through a six-pack of Cutty Sark. It doesn't matter, you know. People used to say, why do you drink so much? You know, did I miss some? I was a type of... I was a pig. I was the kind of drinker, if you want anything left over for New Year's, you didn't invite me for Christmas. From the time I was 16, I drank everything I could, wherever I could, whenever I could, as much as I could possibly hold, preferably yours. And I was never done until I passed out. And... uh, I didn't have a whole lot of trouble with alcohol. People around me had a lot of trouble (laughs) with my alcohol. But you see, a magic happened to me when I drank that uh, I'd never experienced. In fact, I didn't know until recently why I really drank until I heard Joe and Charlie from Little Rock, Arkansas explain it to me. I don't know how many how many of you have heard them do the Twelve Promises. Not an awful lot of people here have heard it, but I just love it, so I'm going to do it anyway. And they explained to me that the reason I drank was because of the Twelve Promises in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And a lot of people that haven't heard that can't hardly believe it. But, you know, I've learned that the reason that we drink is because of the way it makes us feel. See? We drink for the results. Unlike social drinkers, who I don't believe should be allowed to drink anyway. That that part of Chapter 3 just makes me crazy, where it says, you know, medical science has not yet found a way to turn drinkers of our type into normal drinkers. I suspect they're talking about social drinkers, and I'm I'm waiting for the day when medical science will invent a pill that'll make me a social drinker, you know. Then I'm going to wonder if one pill will make me social. (laughs) I'll have a six-pack just get real social. (laughs) Just at the time when it's starting to do what it's supposed to do, they quit. I had a secretary for a long time was a social drinker. We used to go out to lunch, and she'd get this glassy look on her face every once in a while. She'd say, you know, I feel like a glass of wine. I'd say, why? She'd, oh, don't start that again, you know. And I said, seriously, one of these days I'm going to do an academic paper on the thought process that an otherwise seemingly normal human being goes through to arrive at the conclusion that one of anything's worth a damn. And then then she'd sit there and drink half of it, just make me crazy, you know, I could just see it evaporating. And then she'd say something like, oh, that has such a delightful bouquet. You know, the only time I ever had a chance to enjoy the bouquet was on its way back up.
1: Say, for God's sake, why don't you drink the rest of
0: it? She'd say, oh, my dear, no, it might make me dizzy.
1: <laughs> They're crazy.
0: They'd say things that, words, they, they have words that are not in my vocabulary. Like, no, thank you.
1: <laughs> or, No.
0: But see, when I drank, a magic happened to me that I'd never heard described uh, by a social drinker. And so I found out that the reason I drank was because of the the Twelve Promises uh, in the book of, in the magic book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 83 and 84, because here's what happened to me. so that whenever I drank alcohol, I would know a new freedom and a new happiness. Whenever I drank alcohol, I would not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. Now, I wish I'd known this when I was drinking, you know. And the people would say, well, why do you drink? Well, because when I drink, I comprehend the word serenity and I know peace. You know. Whenever I drank alcohol, no matter how far down the scale I've gone, I can see how my experience can benefit others. You know, Whenever I drank alcohol, that feeling of uselessness and self-pity would disappear. Whenever I drank alcohol, I'd lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in my, in my fellows, especially the broads. <laughs> Whenever I drank alcohol, self-seeking would slip, slip away. Whenever I drank alcohol, my whole attitude and outlook on life would change. <laughs> Why do you drink? Are you kidding? Whenever I drank, fear of people and economic insecurity would leave me. Huh? But more important than any of that, whenever I drank alcohol, I would intuitively know (laughs) how to handle situations (laughs) that used to baffle me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) God, whenever I drank alcohol, I would suddenly realize that alcohol was doing for me what I could not do for myself. (laughs) Is it any
0: wonder? (laughs) And isn't it a magic, absolute miracle This is a result of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Almost all of the time today, I can live within those 12 promises in here where I live without drinking any alcohol. See, most of the time these days, I feel like I used to feel after about four martinis. Doubles. (laughs) You know, that point where you reach that that magic point that the alcoholic reaches, what he... looks in the back bar mirror at that perfectly synchronized reflection of himself, you know? Clint Eastwood, you devil. Right? And then you think, God, if those few little drinks would do this, another couple of quarts wouldn't hurt. You know. Because when I drank, all fear of people, places, and things would, would leave me. And all of a sudden, that cloud of impending doom that I'd walked in that bar with would begin to dissipate, and that god hole in my gut with the wind blowing through it would heal over, and and I'd suddenly realize that it wasn't raining inside my suit anymore, you know, and and suddenly that that nervous disorder that I that I'd gotten where I'd be in the middle of signing something and my pen would fly across the room, you know, and here the hand that couldn't have held a pen a few moments before was. Solid as a rock, there, you know, and the whole world was my pineapple, and I could go anywhere and I could do anything and I could be anybody I wanted to do be, you know. Now I only had one problem. Now all I had to figure out was who you wanted me to be so you'd approve of me, and what you wanted me to say so that you'd like me, and what you wanted me to do so that I could be your friend, and I would move. From sobriety, across that line, into that never-never land that Dennis Waitley calls Someday i where the alcoholic lives. Someday I'll get it together. Someday I'll have that relationship. Someday I'll get that business. Someday I'll take that vacation. That never-never land of self-delusion, of lying, procrastination, and rationalization where the alcoholic lives his life for the expectations of others, living his entire life for someone else over there in that never-never land of Someday Isle. And then one magic day, if he's lucky, if he's one of the most fortunate people in the entire world, someone shows him the first step in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And he admits that he's an alcoholic. And at that moment he moves back from that never-never land of Sunday Isle to the center line between sanity and insanity. And now he's on the balance. But unfortunately, many, many of us never move forward. And you can't stay on that balance point because, you see, things are either growing or they're decaying and they can't stay the same and that really makes alcoholics like me crazy because the one thing I can't stand is change and I'm going through a lot of it right now
1: (laughs) in my own life
0: and uh, and at that moment when we admit that we're an alcoholic for the first time We begin to move towards sanity. And I like the definition of of sanity that the psychiatrists use. And it explains step two for me precisely and exactly. Because the psychiatric definition of sanity is this. Sanity is the maximum amount of honesty that any human being can acquire at any given point in their life. Therefore, 100% honesty equals 100% sanity. And that is why it is called a program of rigorous honesty. Because the more honest I can become with myself and the more honest I can become with my God and the more honest I can become with you, the further I move away from that land of someday I, living in self-delusion, lying, and rationalization. And so, step two becomes quite simple for me came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore me to honesty which is sanity so simple it's such a simple gentle program and so many of us complicated beyond all belief and I am distressed at the complications that I see around Alcoholics Anonymous these days and I didn't know all of this when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. All I knew was that when I drank alcohol, I could do all of those things that I was absolutely terrified of doing before I found it. At the age of 16, I had a race car on the track behind alcohol and a forged birth certificate. I rolled a car when I was 17 and shattered my spine, and I was told by five of the finest orthopedic surgeons in the country at that time that I would never walk again as long as I lived. And I spent a year on a Bradford frame in a hospital, and I went from 150 pounds to 80 pounds. And life was unacceptable. And one more time, I sat down and I had a heart-to-heart talk with death. And I made a decision between quantity and quality because life in, under those circumstances for a person of my caliber was unacceptable. So I determined that I would kill myself. And I haven't shared this story very much, but somehow I feel like doing it tonight. Because I was no stranger to God when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you don't like the word God, you're going to have trouble. (laughs) You better read the chapter to the agnostic over and over. So I told my doctor that I couldn't sleep and that I needed some sleeping pills, and I tried that one out, and it wasn't any good. And I told him the next night it wasn't any good, and I needed a different one, and he gave that to me, and that wasn't any good. And the third time he gave me another one, why, that one was good. And I began collecting them, because we get to be masters of that kind of thing. Sleight of hand. A nurse is supposed to watch you take those pills. So you just roll a piece of Kleenex up under your tongue and tuck the pill into the Kleenex, drink the water... She leaves, you take the pill out and put it in a pack of cigarettes. And I had enough sleeping pills to kill everybody in this room twice. I believe in overkill. (laughs) Well, the man next to me, and they used to change with the speed of summer lightning in the ward there and come and go. And he said, "Uh, what's wrong with you? And I told him, and he said, well, see, I had an undiagnosed degenerative progressive disease of the spine in addition to it being smashed. My bones were dissolving and the discs were dissolving. and Two of them had disappeared from the X-rays. And he said, "Well, he said they're giving me deep X-ray therapy for a tumor on my spine, and it's, the tumor is being reduced. And they're sending me home to, to recover, and I'm getting well." So I turned to my doctor and I said, "Why don't we try deep X-ray therapy?" And he said, "Well, why not? We've hit the bottom of the medical barrel in those days. They didn't know what I had, and they tried it, and it began to get better." On my 18th birthday, they allowed me to get up. And it took me three months to learn how to walk again because all of the pads in the bottom of my heels had dissolved. But you know what I found out? I found out that that man in that bed next to me did not have a tumor of the spine. He had cancer. And they were not giving him deep x-ray therapy. They were giving him radium treatments, And they were not sending him home to get well. They were sending him home to die because they couldn't arrest it and the lie that his doctors and his family told him saved my life and allows me to stand here tonight. One year after that, I went into my doctor with a broken thumb and he said, how'd you break it? And I said, I fell down. He said, how'd you fall down? I said, in a turn on a pair of downhill skis at 80 miles an hour and he fainted.
1: <laughs>
0: he didn't understand. You can go 80 miles an hour on a pair of skis when you're drunk.
1: <laughs> Well, yeah, I know the
0: difference between a hero and a coward. It's booze. <laughs> now, I worked for 20 years on the ski patrol. From that day forward, I was the only member that wasn't thrown off for drinking. They thought I came that way. <laughs> I now fly airplanes drunk, and I was one of the first deep-sea divers, scuba divers, on the coast. In 1948, I helped Life magazine do the first article on scuba diving. It's terrifying under that ocean. <laughs> now, if you fill the tank with 50% alcohol, <laughs> all you got to do is just... Put a dish of pure grain alcohol right in front of the air compressor and just bubble the air right through that dish of pure grain alcohol into the intake manifold, and you can get a half a tank of alcohol vapor. Hmm. You stand right on the deck of the ship and get euphoria of the deep.
1: <laughs>
0: never, even get, never even get wet. At the age of 24, I was one of the youngest subdivisors in Southern California, and I was on my way to becoming a millionaire, and the whole world was my pineapple. I could have been anyone, gone anywhere, and done anything. But already I was into the terminal progressive disease of alcoholism and, and already I was up to six and seven martinis for lunch my partner used to say, well,
1: my God, I don't understand how you can drink all those martinis
0: If I had one, I'd go to sleep You know what I told him? A fellow like you just shouldn't drink <laughs> <laughs> See, because booze was the, the, that was the fuel that, that fired the boilers And made me go and at dinner, and at, and, at, and at 5 o'clock after office hours, I was back in those padded sewers where the big deals and the baby dolls are, you know. You have to drink until the traffic clears, 10 o'clock. <laughs> By 10 o'clock, while your alcohol content, uh, blood alcohol content's up there, it's smooth where you can, all your merging genes are together, you know, point zero three eight. You've got to be careful driving home, though, because by now you got an alcoholic car. You've seen them. Mine was long and thin. They get that way from parking in narrow garages at high speeds. You know. And then they have some other character defects. You need to get those straightened out if you're new, because the police have been notified that the drivers of these cars are suspect. I see one of those alcoholic cars today. I always lift the windshield wiper and I put one of the 20 questions under there
1: <laughs> with that
0: state with that question pointing in towards the driver that says are you an alcoholic
1: <laughs> one of
0: these days at one of these meetings one of those crap is going to stand up and he says I got your card <laughs> huh? He can tell the cars you know the exhaust pipes dragging on the ground looks great on 4th of July uh, you know License plate hanging there by one old rusty bolt last year's registration on it. You know. The ones I love are the ones with the red cellophane for tail lights, you know. <laughs> Now they got red backup lights. You don't know if those mothers are coming or going. <laughs>
1: and
0: then mine had little dents all over it, these whiskey bumps, you know. <laughs> Particularly on top. I finally figured out that those came from trying to open it when the keys were locked inside. <laughs> He had another character defect that was very curious. The left headlight looked straight down like this, you know. I got stopped by the same cop two nights in a row in Beverly Hills. And, you know, police officers are just masters of understatement. And he stopped me, and he said, uh, I said, why'd you stop me, officer? He said, your light is out of focus.
1: <laughs>
0: are you kidding? It was shining on his foot.
1: <laughs> but you've got to be
0: cool. I said, what light? Bad enough. Oh, and then he gets this incredulous look of disbelief on his face, and he says, and you've been drinking, haven't you? Well, they already know the answer to the question. They give them the answer so they can pass the police test.
1: <laughs> Two beers
0: is the answer. You
1: think I'm going to be honest with that guy?
0: We have a lot of problem with honesty when we first come to AA, because lying works. <laughs> Do you think for a moment that I was going to tell that judge the truth, When he looked down at me in that San Diego court and he said, Mr. Harbaugh, I would like you to explain to the members of this court and this jury how you could be going 80 miles an hour on the Coronado Ferry. (laughs) Can you imagine me giving him the truth? Well, the truth of the matter is, Your Honor, I'm an alcoholic, full-blown. And I was in a big blackout, didn't know how I was gotten on the ferry in the first place. We were going duck hunting in Bear Lake and can't get to Bear Lake on that damn ferry. I was just drunk on my you know, about .038 there, right there to smooth, Your Honor, right? And I came out of this blackout and there's two things going on. There's a horn honking and a green light flashing. I'm a former race car driver, we're racing. Only well, no three things to do, Your Honor. You just ran the accelerator all the way through the firewall, slide your left foot off the clutch and hang on, baby.
1: <laughs>
0: well, when the red light came on, I asked the man if we'd won. <laughs> he said, You bet, sign here.
1: <laughs>
0: Besides that, Your Honor, I really don't give a damn. I only have one speed in my car fast. Don't have any brakes. I have absolutely no regard for people, places, or property, especially yours. How do you like them apples, Your Honor? And if I'd been going and could have gone any faster, I would have. Are you kidding? Well, Your Honor, I have a certification here from an approved garage stipulating to the fact the character defect in my car, which was the proximate cause of this disastrous incident, which turns out to be a faulty sticking accelerator, has been corrected to the satisfaction of the garage, and I can assure the court and the members of this jury that it will never (laughs)
1: <laughs> Happen again Oh, well,
0: case dismissed you know. So this cop says, have you been drinking? I said, two beers I'm going to tell him I just finished a six-pack of cutty Sark. Are you kidding? He says, I'm going to give you a sobriety test I was so excited I opened the door so darn hard that the next night that he stopped me he was talking in a falsetto
1: <laughs> And
0: I thought it was a different cop I love sobriety tests I mean, if you can drive all the way to Mammoth to go skiing and that's a two-fifth drive any way you cut it and uh, we had a way of driving and drinking that uh, you might want to pass on to some of those clucks that are still out there doing it. And um, well, I learned this was from a professional, because I was a professional alcoholic. I think getting stopped with booze in the car is tacky. <laughs> and uh, so we were on our way to Mammoth this one night, and I turned to this friend of mine, and I said, you got a drink? Mine was up on top of the car in the ski poles. I didn't <laughs> invented the drinking man's ski pole. And he said, sure, and he handed me this... Hose from out from under the dashboard. And I said, What's that? I wanted to drink, not an enema. He said, Well, dummy, he said, Just put that little pipe in your mouth and pull the windshield washer knob.
1: <laughs>
0: he kept a fifth of Cutty Sark there in the windshield washer bag, there, and I tell you, two ounces straight up, right? And you get to Mammoth, and you're so gassed driving all night long that you fall out into the parking lot and you can't walk. Some al has been lurking there in the snowbank all night waiting to rescue you, though.
1: And... <laughs> Any al here tonight? Yeah. Oh, they really need these meetings. They are so, s- they are so sick.
0: And um, then they take you into the warming-up hut to get you tuned up for the day on a half a gallon of Grenache Rosé wine, right? Nine o'clock in the morning while you find yourself clear at the top of the mountain, some fool's nailed a number to your chest and you're entered in a downhill race with that kind of handicap. From the top of the bottom, mountain to the bottom you get through all of those gates and somehow you're placing that race without tearing the whole mountain up and this stupid cop wants me to stand on one foot put my head back and touch a nose the size of mine. Are you kidding? <laughs> what a piece of cake. <laughs> then he made a cardinal error, though. He said, I want you to walk that line. I said, what line? He pointed right at his right foot and that's where I started. <laughs> Right on the instep of his right, I'll tell you, the next night he stopped me, he was incensed.
1: <laughs>
0: you haven't gotten that light fixed yet. I said, What light? And he's talking in this high little voice. I thought it was a different cock. He said,
1: so You know damn well what light.
0: I said, Oh, yeah. And he said,
1: but You've been drinking again. Hell at you.
0: A little vein on his forehead was jumping in and out. Everybody I talked to for over five minutes, a little vein on their head and... I
1: said, You're going
0: to give me another sobriety test? And he's limping away. He said, I will not.
1: <laughs> We'll give you a
0: ticket for that light. You know. Yeah, be careful driving home with all that going on, you know. But you gotta stop and pick up some you know, six pack of cutty sort in case guests stop by. And then you go home and you open that bottle and put the T V on, wait for your favorite program test pattern. <laughs> And then you put the record player on with my all-time favorite artist with those songs filled with hope. You know, Ray Charles, Born to Lose. (laughs) It's Crying Time. You know, the Al-Anon song, Please Release Me. (laughs) I found out the Al-Anon salute. And their prayer, you know, God, if you'd only quit drinking... Then we quit and their life's over.
1: <laughs>
0: Gotta run right out and marry another one of us before the nail holes heal up.
1: <laughs>
0: you probably heard about the Eleanor that committed suicide and somebody else's life flashed before her eyes. <laughs> up at six o'clock in the morning and I got a high enough blood alcohol content in the morning to go to jail eighteen times for drunk driving I wonder if I ought to have a little bracer
1: <laughs> just
0: a little straightener outer there a little eye opener a heart starter you know and at noon I'm going through withdrawal because I can't hold a pen in my hand and I don't know that and I don't know that if I don't get to a, to a drink that I may go into alcoholic withdrawal I may go into a seizure and I don't know that in that seizure I may shatter my spine in six places like one of my dearest friends and I don't know in that alcoholic seizure that I might very well well die from the terminal progressive disease of alcoholism. And it doesn't matter whether I know or not. Because my book says that knowledge is no defense against taking the first drink. And I got to play my string out. I just got to play it out. And finally it all got played out. And I came out of my last alcoholic blackout and I was in St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica. My doctor was looking down at me and he was crying. I could tell because he was getting me all wet. (laughs) I just tried to commit suicide not too long before that Came home one night and there the animal was in the entry hall mirror one more time So we determined after a little meeting that we'd kill me So I went upstairs and I dragged my forty-five automatic out from under my pillow I kept it there because they were after me You don't have to be paranoid to know they're after you. (laughs) I qualified expert with a forty-five. I hit what I aimed at, and I jacked a shell in the chamber, took dead aim between my eyes, and pulled the trigger. Blew a $90 mirror off the wall. Scared my tenant next door so bad, he ran right out and joined AA. (laughs) Six years later. I asked my doctor why I was was crying, and he said, they're melodramatic, too. He said, because, damn you, you've killed yourself. (laughs) I said, well, finally. We've been at it long enough. I said, why am I dying? And He said, well, because you got it all now. And I said, well, what's all? He said, well, you have alcoholic gastritis, cirrhosis of the liver, hemorrhagic pancreatitis. You got two ulcers that are hemorrhaging. You're bleeding from every opening in your body we've pushed seven pints of your blood type and the bank's empty and your blood pressure's 60 over 40. And for those of you that don't know what 60 over 40 is, that's serene.
1: <laughs>
0: you do not care whether school keeps or not. He said, and the blood bank's empty and that's the name of that tune and that's why you're dying and besides. I said, oh, is there more? I was beginning to get interested. I'd figured out by then he was talking about me. He said, yes, if you don't promise me you'll never drink again as long as you live, I won't even treat you. (laughs) I promise. I said, just get me out of this bed. Some puke has wet it.
1: (laughs) Ten days later, I
0: was back out in the street and I was drunk again. He told me I'd not do that anymore. I came off that last drunk and I was lying in my bed and I was in the skid row of my very own design. A gentle man born to all of the things that I hear people say, if I had all of those things, I wouldn't have to drink. Born to one of the finest families in the world. Grew up in Beverly Hills with the finest education that money could buy. With all of those things that you see in movies. We never had a Thanksgiving or a Christmas dinner without six sterling silver forks and we knew each one and what it was used for and lead crystal goblets and finger bowls and servants and all of the love and support of a family that you could imagine. And that morning I was living in the skid row of my very own design the unfinished concrete basement of an old beat up house hanging on the side of a cliff in Silver Lake. I could not afford to live in the house. And everything was broken. Everything. And I believe that that one word describes an alcoholic at my bottom better than ever anything. It was just broken. Broken dreams and broken promises and broken hearts and broken marriages and broken homes and broken businesses and broken bank accounts and broken laws and a broken house, and a broken body, a broken mind, and a broken soul, and it was all done. And I knew it. It was all over. And I cried out to the God of my childhood, and in my hour of direst need, he heard me. And the only word that I recall is the word remember, and I remembered. I remembered a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous that I'd been to, and I can't tell you when it was or where. See, death holds no fear for an alcoholic like me. I have sat down across the table six times in my life and talked with death just as fluently as I'm speaking tonight. I know what death is. I have had people die in my arms. I have been involved in saving lives almost all my life. Life is very precious to me. Yours, not mine. For me, I never cared. Not ever. Not in the least bit. Starting from the day I was born. And that morning, I remembered. I remember an old timer that had come up to me, and he said something like this. He said, Ted, he said, I think you're just chipping around with this deal called Alcoholics Anonymous. He said, I don't believe you've hit a bottom which is necessary to satisfy the admonition laid down in Chapter 3 which says, and I did not remember all of this, but that admonition stipulates that we learned. And that means experientially, not academically. This is nothing but a computer between our ears. And that's why we have so much trouble when we come here, because it was programmed by fools. Our parents, teachers, and peers who did the very best job that they could, but they knew something. They knew that if they put just the right program in here, they could rule us forever with guilt, shame, and fear, and it works. And we believed it. And we got this kind of programming as children. Things like, there's nothing to be afraid of out there, Ted. Ted. Why am I terrified? There's nothing in the dark that wasn't there when the light was on. Fine, leave the light on. (laughs) The great dichotomies. Look before you leap, and he who hesitates is lost. Now you're really screwed. (laughs) Don't talk about yourself too much. Don't think too highly of yourself. That's egotistical. Don't ever share anything with anybody. They might know you. Fake it, you see. Don't ever get to know yourself. Don't touch yourself, especially there. <laughs> and then they put you to bed with that all-time serenity prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. If I should die before I wake,
1: <laughs> you know.
0: Dad, I really feel scared and embarrassed. Dad, you don't have any right to feel that way, son. You have a good personality and you're good-looking. Now get out there and do it. Now i got four problems. I only went to him with one.
1: <laughs>
0: we learned that we had to fully concede total and absolute surrender to our innermost self as far as we could go, that we were alcoholic. This is the first step in recovery. Clear back in Chapter 3. And he said, before you reach a bottom that's necessary for everybody to satisfy that admonition in chapter 3, you can't make this deal because you can't surrender. And surrender is the beginning. You must reach a bottom, either, and it's different for every one of us, a bottom either financially or physically or socially or economically or socially or spiritually, beneath which you cannot go. And he said, one day when you reach that bottom, he said, I pray to God you'll remember a magic place where you can go. Where I absolutely promise you, you can find a way to live your life comfortably with unsolved problems without ever having to drink again as long as you live. And where you will meet people, I promise you, that will end up meaning more to you than the members of your very own family because when you need these people no matter how long the day or dark tonight, night, they will be there, and they will be there just for you. And they'll be there for only one reason, because they care. And they call it Alcoholics Anonymous. And he said, and in this magic place, he said, I promise you that you can find a God of your very own that you can take with you wherever you go. So you need never be alone again as long as you live. And they call it Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I came back to a little park on Roxbury in Beverly Hills where I grew up and used to play as a kid. And that's where I met those old-timers with 20 and 30 years of sobriety that walked the walk and talked the talk of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it seemed to me they wore their sobriety like a crown. And they were doing the one thing I'd wanted to do all my life. They were just stepping out easy. But they were doing it without taking any mind altering chemicals or drinking any alcohol of any kind. And somehow in the insanity. It was to be mine for a long time. I wanted what they had and I came back. That night as I left that meeting, it was April 1st of 1968 and as I left that room, my God looked down on me and he removed the obsession to drink alcohol from me forever, never to be returned. And I believe I know just a little bit in part why that happened that night. For me to drink again is to die. I will never Recover from another drink of alcohol. But more important than that, there's another reason. God has a magic way of speaking through me that is an absolute gift and has allowed me to help many, many people on this program. I sponsor over 50 guys on an ongoing basis. Some of them as a brother, some as a father. A couple has a son, but always has a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous that tries to his best ability to walk the walk. Because I found out that anybody can do podium talk. Talk is cheap. I watched the ones in those early days whose lives were falling apart as mine has recently done. And they walk through it with dignity and self-respect and honesty as sober, comfortable members of Alcoholics Anonymous and those are the ones that I got my program from. And they're the ones that I want. See, in November I found it necessary to separate from my wife the 16 years marriage. and my little daughter and she are both down in San Diego now. And In March of this year, I had a six-figure income job evaporate, and I'm just barely able now to to support them because my wife still isn't working. And I've had to make geographic moves. And so I'm facing and have faced for a year the three most traumatic things that can happen in a man's life. When most people my age are thinking about retiring and taking it easy, I'm back out on the cutting edge one more time. But see, that's where I lived all my life. Right on the outside of the carousel where I put my little daughter the first time I took her to the merry-go-round. And she said, Daddy, why do I have to ride on that big horse on the outside that goes so fast? I said, because that's where we ride, honey. See, that's where life happens. See, life is what's going on while most people are waiting for it to happen. And many, many people sit on the inside of the ring and watch it go around. And they never have the wind blow through the air, and they never have the tears stream down their face. And they never know what it is to be out on the cutting edge, out there doing it. But I said, out there on the edge is the only place you got a chance to grab the brass ring, honey, because that's where it is. And I've grabbed it many times. And sometimes I've lost it. And sometimes I've misplaced it. Sometimes it's been stolen. And sometimes it's just gone away. But it's out there any time I want it. And that's what we got to go for one more time. Because see, like Jimmy Ryan used to say, life is now in session. It's now in session. And there. And it's the Super Bowl every day. Every day it's the Super Bowl. And there's no timeouts and there's no substitutions. And the clock is always running because that's all we have is time. And it's so precious and it's slipping by so fast. But that's where we are. Out there on the edge doing the 12-step work and carrying the message and running the meetings and sponsoring the people and for God's sake cherishing and loving the program and trying never, never to let it get lost. Never let it get lost. Protect it with your life because it is your life. And finally in desperation I went to those old timers to find out how this deal works because I was in a lot of trouble physically sober only and I did not know that sobriety is a process of becoming as one becomes a pianist or a typist or a computer operator or a football player or a skier or a pilot and you have to learn the terminology and the principles and then you have to begin to put them into practice and play the scales and then the chords and and you have to listen to the discord and the disharmony and make the mistakes and, and you have to fall down until one day, the right hand is playing with the left hand, each in different clefts, each doing their own thing, not even able to read each other's music, playing in the one thing we've looked for all of our lives harmony. Harmony. And it all comes together, and you have become sober. Physically sober first, and then emotionally sober, and then emotionally sober, and then socially sober. And finally, spiritually sober, a process of becoming. And so many people stop with physical sobriety and they say, oh, I've been sober for so many years. And they're not. And I would rather be drunk than suffer the kind of pain they suffer. And so I went to the old timers to find out how this deal works. And they told me, it's in the book, The whole program is between pages 1 and 164 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. and that's all there is to it and there isn't any more. And all the rest of the printed material and all the pamphlets and all that stuff, that's just fringe benefit. That's all it is. And the meetings. The meetings before the meetings, the meetings after the meetings, the roundups and the convention. All that stuff, that's the fellowship. It doesn't have anything to do with the program. I thank God for the fellowship and the love and the support that it's given me and the thousands of friends that love me for who I am that the fellowship has given me. Because without the fellowship I could not have survived those early years when you began to love me when I could not love myself. Between pages 1 and 164, that's all. Including the doctor's opinion at the beginning and the definitions in the appendix at the end of the book. They told me that the program specifically is the 12 steps and that the 12 steps are divided into three parts. The first three steps are becoming willing to turn your will and your life over to the care of God. The next six steps are how you turn it over and the last three steps are how you keep it turned over for the rest of your life, and that's all there is to it and then anymore. more. You can do all 12 steps every five minutes if you want to, but it isn't necessary. Now I hear people stand at these podiums and they say things like, well, I do step one, two, and three every day. For the newcomers here. isn't that wonderful? I see all they're doing is getting ready to commence to start to begin and they haven't done nothing. I don't even know how you do step one and two. It's not explained in the book as far as I know. All I know is that it says this right after that part of chapter five that we read at every meeting in Southern California. Chapter to the agnostic, the description of the alcoholic, chapter to the agnostic and our stories before and after made clear three pertinent ideas. A, that we were alcoholic and could not manage our own life. B, that no human power could have relieved our alcoholism. But C, that God couldn't would if he were sought. Not found, just sought. Next sentence says, being convinced of this, we were at step three. That's it. And the old timers told me, if you're not convinced, well, just go get drunk. Go back out there and do whatever it is you do to be hip and too until by God you're convinced. And then you can come back and we'll get down on our knees and do step three, and that's the end of that tune. I hear people all the time say, well, I do step three every day. That's like sitting on the side of your bed saying, well, I don't know why I'm starving to death. I'm willing to eat.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, maybe a great idea in the right direction, but ain't not going to get it did. There's one other way you can get convinced. See, this is the basic text of Alcoholics Nouns. The reason I know that is because that's what it says on the first page. This has become the basic text... And a textbook needs to be read and studied so you learn the terminology. And those first four chapters are designed for several reasons, they told me. They are designed to explain the exact nature of our disease. They are designed to prepare a path by which it is guaranteed and promised you will find a power greater than yourself. It is guaranteed to convince you of those three ideas. Being convinced of this, you hit step three. If you still have the energy after all of that to turn the page over, there's a prayer for step three. You read that, and that's a big deal. (laughs) Five minutes after a guy asked me to be a sponsor, we're on our knees somewhere doing step three, and then we turn the page over. Because at the top of the next page, they pointed out that it says the experiences we feel at this point will be short-lived. That's not very long. Unless followed at once, and that's rather soon, by searching and fearless moral small inventory, you know. And I, I see the damnedest inventories. And I don't know what, but you know, great autobiographies done on word processors with spelling programs in them. And, uh, what book are they reading? All it says is made a list of everybody pissed off at. He uses a big word: resentful. Now, how long is that going to take? You know, I love Joe and Charlie's uh, guide for a fifth, for a fourth step inventory. Blank piece of paper with four columns, right? And you just do it according to the book. Unfortunately, the sample on page sixty-five, I think maybe Lois Wilson had a little something to do with it,
1: <laughs> because
0: it looks as if it's written from left to right. Now, Al-Anons make lists from left to right. That's to confuse us. So we get to do it wrong, and then we can apologize, and they're back in the driver's seat again.
1: <laughs>
0: but the way you make a list is from top to bottom. You just made a list of all of them, and then the, the cause of it, and, and then which affects my, you know. And then, and then, it, then it turns out you go around and, and you read that back again to your sponsor, I was angry at my mommy because she put me on the potty backwards, which ex- affected my social security and my sexual security and my, you know, which points out my character defect, which is fear. The All character defects and uh, and and the seven deadly sins and, and all of them, when you finally distill all of them down, it's fear. Right? Fear of success, fear of failure, fear of being too fat, fear of being too skinny, fear of, you know great book out called Overcoming the Fear of Success Mm -hmm. and it's just a blueprint of the alcoholic and then you share this with somebody looking for the patterns because I love the line that Eugene O'Neill made which says this it says he says there is no past pardon me there is no future and there is no present only the past repeating itself over and over and over and my job today is to look at those patterns so that I can keep them from reoccurring in my life and destroying me. And then after you share that inventory with somebody, why? Come home and turn to what I believe is the most magic page in the entire book of Alcoholics Anonymous, page 75. And I I don't hear many people talk about that page very much. There are ten promises on page 75. That's the beginning of the whole deal. See, you, you can't get to page 75 by turning there because it's sandwiched in between step 5 and 6 exactly like what it is, a gift from God. And there's only two things you can do with it. You can just accept it and make it yours and be forever grateful or you can throw it away and never know. That's the beginning of the whole deal. Is right there on page 75. If you really want to know what we have, go home and read it. You'll only find nine promises, but there's Ten. I'm going to give you four of them. On page 75 it says, we are preparing an arch through which we will walk, a free person. See, I'm free today by the definition in the big book which says freedom is doing what I have to do because I want to do it. There isn't anything I have to do that I don't want to do. Nothing. If I'm willing to take full responsibility for my behavior. It goes on to say, if the obsession to drink alcohol has not been removed prior to this point, it will surely be removed presently or now. Hurry on lest the test come before you're ready. And the test is in the book. It says there'll come a time in the life of every alcoholic where there will be no mental defense against taking the first drink. None. That means that no matter what's going on in this gigantic computer, it's not going to save you. And my book says that at that point, which has happened many times in my life, sober, my only defense against drinking will be my spiritual condition. But, my book goes on to say, that if I am just trying to practice the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous in my daily affairs, and if I am just trying to keep my spiritual house in order, I need never fear drinking again as long as I live. You may add one day at a time if you wish. But there's two hooks in that. I have to know what the principles are and have put them into practice in order to keep on practicing them. And I have to have gotten my spiritual house in some sort of order in order to keep it in order. That is what the Twelve Steps are all about. It goes on to say on that page, all fear will fall away. You won't know that until later on, sometime down the line, you screw up the courage to take the risk, to do the one thing that absolutely terrified you and find out the God's removed that fear. See, in seven years on this deal, I found myself looking straight down over the side of a 27-story building and I had terminal acrophobia, fear of height. And I found out all fear of height had been removed. And once again, I could, I could go to the mountains of my childhood and climb into those gondolas and those chairlifts with no fear of height, without taking any mind all chemicals or any alcohol of any kind. Only this time was different, because I could take my little daughter, who then was five years old, with me. And I could let her cry because she was frightened and tell her it was going to be okay, because it always has been. As I helped her off the chair at the top of the mountain that first time. She said, Daddy, you don't understand. She said, You're a great big professional, and I'm just a tiny little newcomer. And I said, Honey, it's okay. But I said, We're going to play a little game. And in this game, I gave her the first prayer that you gave me when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, Honey, I said, You just... Put your hand in mine and come with me because I've been there and I know the way and it'll be okay. But hang on real tight and don't let go because if you let go, I'm going to lose you. I don't want to ever lose you. And that's the way we went down that mountain, my little daughter and I. When we got to the bottom, she looked up at me with the sun shining in her face and laughter in her eyes. And she said, Daddy... Can we do it again? And I almost missed it all. But for the grace of God and the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, all fear will fall away. It goes on to say on that page that we will sense the nearness of our Creator and we will feel as if we're on the broad highway with God. You will have brushed the face of God, you will have established a conscious contact with a power greater than yourself. All right there on page 75 in six more promises. My God, what a gift. I believe in the bottom of my heart that we have here contained in 154 pages the greatest gift that God ever gave to mankind to it ever lose it. It was Barry Wilson's prayer that one day this program be adopted by all mankind as their basic philosophy. What a world it would be if everyone was living in eternal gratitude, making amends immediately, doing personal inventory. Trying to be honest, open-minded, and willing about everything. And when it comes to the amends, you already have your list. Don't listen to the people that think, well, that was a wonderful job, now burn it. Because, unfortunately, a few pages later it says, referring to our list, which you've now (laughs) burned, make sure your sponsor knows what's in the book. Make amends to yourself first. See, I found out that this is all an inside job, and, and so when I became willing to ask God to forgive me, I found out that I'm one of his kids, and that he would, and then I could forgive you, and only then could I ask you to forgive me. And now it all doesn't matter anyway, because you're stuck in step 10 for the rest of your life. And step 10 is 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, and if you miss one, it won't work. And in step 10, I find the God-given tools that I dare not leave my home with any day lest I need them during the day that allow me thusly by whatever it is that's bothering me to pick up a pencil and a piece of paper and write about it because there is a magic that happens between the pencil and the paper that will never, ever, ever happen between the mind and the mouth. And I don't know why that is and I don't care because I know this. I know that knowing why is the booby prize of life. (laughs) I don't know why I'm able to walk again. I don't know why I wasn't able to at one time. All I know is it's all over. And knowing why never made a bit of difference. I had an operation on my knee with orthoscopic surgery about two years ago. I knew the pathology of it. I knew when it happened, where it happened, how it happened, who did it. I knew everything that was about the operation, how it was going to be performed. And it did not help the pain one damn bit. (laughs) And now I have it in a little package and now I can share it with one of you and now it's not so heavy so I can take it to my God in step seven and ask him to help me with it. And every time I do that, if whatever's bothering me comes back, it doesn't come back as often. If it comes back, it doesn't last as long and if it comes back, it doesn't have the power that it had before. And all I have to do is do that over again and over and over until finally it's relegated to the scrap heap of serenity. Gone forever. And that's how you turn it over We'll go to these people and say, well, just turn it over. How do I do that? I don't know. Just turn it over. <laughs> well, I turned it over, and then I took it back, and then I turned it over, and blah, 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 and I don't know what they're talking about. That's how it's turned over. Separated by a little word, and one year wrong, promptly admitted it, steps eight and nine. And I don't need that much anymore, because for me, love is never having to say you're sorry, which means this. That I love every one of you from the bottom of my heart to such an extent that I would never intentionally do or say the slightest thing that would harm any one of you. But if, being imperfect, I should step on your foot in error, I have step eight and nine in the last half of step ten to take care of that immediately. And so, in step ten, I have the magic tools that are guaranteed to allow me to live my life comfortably with unsolved problems so that I need not live with any guilt, shame, fear, or resentment. Not one instant longer than the distance from a pencil to a piece of paper and a loving heart of Alcoholics Anonymous, because my God is with me all the time. In step 11, one of the promises comes true. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve the conscious contact that I made somewhere back there between step 5 and 6 when I brushed the face of God, praying only for his will for me and the power to carry that out. In step 12, another promise comes true. Having had a spiritual awakening, which is defined as a personality change sufficient to recover from the disease of alcoholism, we tried to carry this message of our personality change and how that occurred to the alcoholic who still suffers and practice these principles, the principles of honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, because that's how it works. H-O-W in our daily affairs. And humility. And I like the definition of humility in my big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It has nothing to do with creating a supple spine. Do not, do, do not find it necessary any longer to confuse humility with humiliation. We did that long enough. Humility in my big book, the willingness to become teachable. And when I became willing to allow you to teach me, I found a magic way of living I never dreamed possible. have three prayers that I'll give you. Please, if you're new, put your hand in ours and come with us because we've been there and we know the way and it will be okay, but hang on real tight and don't let go because if you let go, we're going to lose you and we don't want to lose anybody, not if we can help it. And the second prayer, please keep coming back and listening to the music until you can understand the words. Listening to the music of alcoholics, maybe for the first time, able to laugh at themselves. The healing magic of the laughter and the love of the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous that I've seen put back together broken and shattered human beings that no human power could have ever put back together. And the loving programs of Al-Anon and al that I've seen put back together broken and shattered families and broken and shattered children that no human power could have ever put back together. And the last prayer, the really hard one, the really tough one, please pray God, let us love you until you can learn to love yourself. And so if you keep coming back and listening to the music and hanging on to these people and letting them love you, and you get a sponsor, and you take the steps, I don't know anything about working a program or working the steps, just take them. One day, Maybe it'll happen like it did for me. And I was walking down the street with my head held high and my shoulders back, once again a useful and decent human being. Today I know who I am and where I'm going and where I've been. All of my questions are answered and I live in the sunlight of God's love almost all the time. And where I'm not, I know exactly what to do about it, because you taught me. And because finally I could listen. And one morning I was looking in the mirror at this newfound friend, and I heard myself whisper very quietly just to myself, I love you. And in that moment it all moved the longest distance known to mankind. From the head to the heart, from academic to experientially to experiential and I knew see because you either know in this life or you don't know and there isn't any in between there isn't any in between I knew that I was sober that I was one of God's kids and that I was happy joyous, and free with me in here where I live with him and it all came together And I keep it together by loving you and loving the program and loving my God and doing whatever I can whenever I'm asked. We're out of time, and I wish we weren't, because time is all we have. So live every day as if it were your last, and love every moment of every day, because there just isn't time to do anything else. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Ted.